I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Our revels now are ended. And these are actors, as I foretold you. We're all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. <sighs> We are such stuff as dreams are made on. And our little life is rounded with a sleep. That was David Threlfall as Prospero in The Tempest, a monologue that many believe is Shakespeare's farewell to the stage. Hello, and welcome back to The Plays the Thing. Today, we're going to be discussing Act Four of The Tempest. I am Tim McIntosh, and I'm joined, hello, Heidi White, by Heidi White. And we are discussing what many scholars believe is William Shakespeare's, one of his final plays, if not his final play. Heidi, how are you? doing great. I'm so excited to be here. How are you, Tim? I'm doing very well. Hi, I want to do something a little bit different today. Um, Okay, go on, please. (laughs) (laughs) So the play's the thing. We move slowly through Shakespeare's plays. We kind of tackle an act at a time, which means we pay a lot of attention to the characters and the plot and the wordplay of Shakespeare. But I wanted I want to do something different in that I, I would like to talk today about Shakespeare. Because if this monologue, which shows up in Act Four, is in fact his farewell to the stage, I thought it might be a nice occasion 
to talk about who he was, kind of talk about his biography, to talk about why he is so cherished as a playwright, not just in the English-speaking world, but everywhere in the world. I mean, we can make a case that he is the world poet. I think the case is a little bit easier that he's at least the English language poet, maybe for all time. And I just thought, you know, we don't have a chance to talk about, we talk about him kind of here and there when we think that something about his biography may be pertinent to a play. But I thought it might just be nice to spend some time talking about when he lived, what his preoccupations were, did he have religious convictions? Do they inform his plays, et cetera, et cetera? How, do, how does that sound to you? It sounds great. I'd love to do that. Before we do that, let's do a little recap of Act Four. The beginning of the play starts with a tempest, and we find ourselves kind of washed up on the shore of this island. And this island is ruled by a magician named Prospero who has a daughter. His daughter soon discovers a man. She has seen no other men aside from her father and Caliban and whatever Ariel is. We're not really sure what Ariel is. But then she discovers Ferdinand. They quickly fall in love. But meanwhile, Ferdinand's fellow Italians are kind of dispersed throughout the island. And they're not really good guys. And they helped oust Prospero from his reign in, oh gosh, I'm sorry, was it Milan, Heidi? Yes. Okay. Yes. Forgive me. Like all of a well, Alonzo is the Duke of Naples. Naples, and, Naples, Naples. Yeah, and Prospero was the Duke of Milan. That's right. That's yeah. right. So now those Italians that have kind of ousted Prospero are back on the island. And Prospero is kind of having his way with them, a little bit of revenge. Meanwhile, Ferdinand and Miranda are getting together. And in Act 4, it's kind of a betrothal act between Miranda and Ferdinand. And it's also a marriage scene, but it's a very peculiar one. It's a very peculiar one. So I thought like, maybe we could talk about this, this marriage scene or this, I don't know quite how to describe it, Heidi, help me here. Um, it's a blessing, Prospero's yeah. kind of blessing and sanction upon their marriage, uh, in some ways sanctified for lack of a better word, or maybe that's the perfect word, Yeah, <laughs> depending on your point of view of the play, uh, by magic. Yeah. By Prospero's the, art. There are these three female characters that show up to kind of preside over the blessing. And these three, Heidi, can you tell us anything about these three female characters? Sure. Well, as you said just a minute ago, it's a bit of a strange scene. It has one of Shakespeare's most famous speeches in it, which we just heard. Right. Um, and I'm hoping you'll read it again here in a few minutes, Tim, because uh, I'll love to hear you read Shakespeare. Uh, but anyway, just the whole scene's just a little bit odd. Uh, it opens, I mean, it opens with Prospero having a conversation with Ferdinand in which he uh, reveals all to Ferdinand and Miranda, lets him know, hey, you can marry my daughter. I was just messing with you. I wanted to test your love. That's what's been going on this whole time. He sanctions their union. Uh, and then in order to show them that he is giving them a blessing, he puts on 
this play within a play, which is a, a famous, uh, really important interpretive tool for Shakespeare, look for the play within the play. Yeah. Uh, and here we have it in Act 4, Scene 1, which is only one scene. But before the play within the play, he has kind of an odd, Prospero and Ferdinand have kind of an odd conversation uh, in which Prospero charges Ferdinand to protect his daughter's purity. Mm -hmm. That's not that odd. I mean, Mm -hmm. I hope many fathers are still having that conversation with their daughter's suitors. But then Ferdinand responds in kind of a strange way by saying, yes, sure, I promise I will respect her purity. I will not violate her virgin knots. But then he proceeds to talk about how hard that will be for him uh-huh. and what he, uh, how long the wedding day is going to seem to him because of his great desire for Miranda. Uh, and that's kind of strange. Uh, that seems like a very odd kind of conversation. The father-in-law is not the one. Yeah. It's not, you don't have that conversation with the father-in-law. Like, right. But I guess like he's a little bit limited. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have, he can be like, hey, bro, this is going to be hard. So, right. I guess but you have to it. wonder to your point about, you know, we've been talking so much about Shakespeare's brilliance and how he never wastes a word. Why put that in there? Right. Yeah, but, yeah. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is I think it does have a connection to the play within the play because in the, it, there you have a, a conversation about desire and there's this comparing and contrasting of two different kinds of love, paternal love and erotic love. And that comes up. Miranda is the object of affection and they're both kind of expressing verbally the full extent of their great love for Miranda in different ways, in a paternal way and in an erotic way. And both of those are perfectly appropriate ways, just obviously in different roles. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's part of why Shakespeare put that in there, not just to have an awkward conversation between a suitor and um, a potential father-in-law, but also kind of to explore the different kinds of love. Um, So I think that that's connected to this kind of strange play within a play Uh, in which these three mythological Greek goddesses, Iris, the messenger goddess, Juno, the queen of heaven, uh, and Ceres, the goddess of agriculture, uh, those three bless the union of Ferdinand and Miranda, and they extol the virtues of marriage in a completely different way, in a social way. Mm. They start to talk about the value of marriage for the land. For example, Ceres... Uh, says, you know, because of your marriage, the land will be blessed. Uh, Juno talks about having children in a stable society. Iris kind of welcomes them both and talks about different specific ways in which marriage uh, has has been sanctioned in the past, including, strangely enough, the kidnapping of Ceres' own daughter, uh, Persephone, uh, by the king of the dead, Hades. Um, and but still, that brings a stabilization to society because yeah. the two are married, right? And so, there's, I think, with the play within a play and this odd conversation between uh, Prospero and Ferdinand at the beginning of the scene, we do see the many ways that marriage is a blessing personally and to society and the different kinds of love. But to someone who's not looking for that, it just is weird. Yeah. It is It's a peculiar scene. So, one thing it reminded me of, um, Heidi, do you recall the story from early Roman history, the rape of the Sabine women? It's commonly called the rape of the Sabine women. Yes. So just to kind of like recount it for our listeners, rape is not the right word. That word means something different today, but abduction is the right word. So yeah, kidnapping. Um, yes. 
So <laughs> Romulus is like the leader of this band of men, like the kind of like found the mythological founder of Rome. They kind of build this city. He and his men build this city and great, you know, their civilization is often running in Rome, except for, gosh, we get this one little problem. We can't procreate. We have no way of procreating because we have no women. So Romulus and his men kind of organize a raid on a nearby city and they go, they take all of these women, they abduct them, they bring them back to their kind of founding city. And of course now, the men in this neighboring city, the brothers and the fathers and the husbands, of course, are not going to say this is okay. Actually, I don't know that any were husbands of the women. I don't know that they were, I think the women were, were unwed, regardless. Right. The fathers and brothers of these women are livid, so they schedule a counter-raid. They counter-raid, and a huge fight ensues, of course. And how does it all stop? By the Sabine women who were abducted rushing out into the middle of the battle and basically saying, stop, this has to end. And they've kind of, it sounds like, according to the tale, fallen in love with Romulus and his men. And so they end up staying. So it's this really bizarre scene that in a strange way, could only really be resolved by a marriage. And I wonder, Heidi, if that's, that's what's going on here. Because Prospero is both angry at the Italians who have landed on his island, because the, what they've done to him, but also recognizing that one of those Italians, Ferdinand, is going to be his son-in-law. So, he's kind of torn in two directions and it seems like the marriage of his daughter and these, this, these strange characters who are blessing the marriage are the, maybe in some way it's a, he is, how do I say this? Maybe these strange characters are blessing it because they are kind of in some ways familiar with how extremely, destructive circumstances can really only be healed by a bond, a marriage bond. Right. Would, would that make sense? Am I, I think, like reaching I think too that far? There's, no, no, no. I think that that's embedded within this narrative for sure. Uh, the, as you keep pointing out over the last several weeks when we record this, how special the bond between Prospero and Miranda is how much he so deeply loves his daughter and how his testing of Ferdinand is a test of affection. Mm. Is Ferdinand worthy of Miranda? Does he love Miranda? Is this a, is this a genuine bond, not just a social bond? Uh, because we have that green world, the Eden that's going to be settled by these one of two or a blend of these competing forces of corruption and good. And so the soul is at stake and the land, the island is at stake here. And the stable social bond of marriage is healing to a land and settling to a land. But it must, Shakespeare seems to be saying, ex- also exist within the bonds of true affection, which is 
to the modern mind seems like a given, but to the medieval and Renaissance mind is not a given. Mm. And so Shakespeare in some ways is saying something truly remarkable here that Ferdinand and Miranda have to love each other in order for the land to be made right, to be kept pure. And, and, and that to the modern mind, again, that's, I mean, sure, we believe that. And it's the other side that's really offensive to us. But to the medieval and Renaissance mind, it would have been flip-flopped. They would have said the social bond of marriage, the thing that it does for a society is not dependent on love and affection. That it's, it's dependent on just the vow. You do it whether you love mm. this person or not. And Shakespeare seems to be saying, no, Ferdinand and Miranda have to actually love each other. Mm. And that's the revolutionary, revolutionary idea in Shakespeare's time. That romantic love ought precede the like just the commitment is that what you're saying Heidi yeah that romantic that affection is as essential to the sanctity of marriage as the commitment itself and the vow itself which with you know Shakespeare was a middle class man we're about to talk about that Uh, but he performed these plays he actually performed this play at a wedding Mm. a, a wedding of a princess of James's daughter uh, and so, who was probably married for expedience, for political sake. So, for him to be putting forth then Ferdinand and Miranda and Prospero as the superego character, as the, the ruling character who does what's good for the land, no matter what, right? For him to be upholding the bond of affection in marriage and saying these two characters should, must and should love each other, not just be marrying because their fathers told them to. That's the revolutionary idea in that particular time and revolutionary in the specific context in which Shakespeare performed this play, which was a political and expedient marriage. Yeah, not necessarily a marriage um, founded on a a true affection of two minds. Right, which we hope that they actually had that. I have no idea if they did or not. What I do know is that back in those times, you as a king gave your daughter in marriage to form a political bond with another nation. And that's how James did this. So, you know, we're going to read this as, well, of course they had to love each other, but that's not necessarily how Shakespeare's audience would have received it. Although Shakespeare has marriages of love in all of his plays. Heidi, you said something off the air, which I did not know, but I immediately, when you said it, I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's the some scholars have the idea that this ceremony might have been an insertion after Shakespeare wrote the complete play, that maybe it was inserted later to kind of prepare the way for King James's daughter's wedding. And I, I I'll just say, and I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that if you could, but I'd like to say, like, as soon as you mentioned that, I thought, oh, that makes so much sense. Because I I was watching the play and reading it, I thought, boy, this is kind of, this is kind of clumsy. This is, does not feel like Shakespeare, like the, the introduction into the ceremony and the outro of the ceremony just didn't, it just felt kind of patched, you know, Prospero gets kind of angry at the end he's kind of upset and i'm like and i thought he's upset because he just all of a sudden remembered that caliban and caliban's henchmen are coming back to find him that seems kind of implausible like 
maybe he forgot, but it just seemed kind of a clumsy way to get back into the main plot line. Also, Shakespeare is constant. I think one of his many strengths is he creates tension. He creates dramatic tension. And Mm. during this scene, all of the tension is, is gone. So in other marriage scenes, in other plays, the marriage is either the happy ending that wraps everything up, or it's a scene that the marriage is happening and the marriage creates more drama and tension. And this just seemed to me just kind of, it it, it did not do either. It just seemed kind of a showpiece that relieved all dramatic tension in the middle of act four. And so when you mentioned to me, some scholars think that it was dropped in later. I thought I could buy that because it just doesn't seem like a very Shakespearean moment within the play. Right. Yeah. It's, there's no historical evidence for that theory. The, the evidence for it is entirely what you just said is that the scene. Yes. Like you look at it and you think, well, we do know that he performed this play for James. uh, And we do know that this scene is kind of clumsy and feels a bit disjointed. uh, And so maybe he kind of threw it in there for the sake of this performance for the King. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, I, I think it works. Again, it's a debated point. It's not necessarily accepted generally, but it's it it, it does fit kind of the, the way that the, the clunky nature of yeah. the transition between these different parts of this long scene. Yeah. Ending the scene, Prospero flies into a distempered anger and that kind of sets the scene for this monologue that we opened the podcast with all our rebels are, are now ended. So Heidi, I'm going to, I'm going to per your suggestion, I'm going to read oh, that good. monologue again. <laughs> any, any chance that I get to read like one of his great monologues is a happy <laughs> day for me. And I just like to talk about Shakespeare, his biography, um, what his chief concerns were, why he is so remembered. But let me, let me read the monologue first. So this is from Prospero after the conclusion of this kind of blessing scene. Our revels are now ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, ye all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. It's beautiful, and it's, it's, it's a sad monologue. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it, 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 and it would make, it makes so much sense to me that Shakespeare's by our standards, when he wrote this, uh, not an old man, he'd be kind of like firmly ensconced in middle age. I think we would say, but I, I, 
as a middle-aged man myself, I can see the, the end of my life is a lot closer than the beginning of my life. And I feel like I can hear that in this monologue. Um, we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. It does feel like a man who recognizes how short life is and like the Psalms say, um, was it man's days are like grass, you know, they blossom and they are cut down and then thrown to the furnace and, and they're gone. And I feel a lot of that in this monologue that life is a kind of a fleeting breath. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in the, the context of this, I mean, this is a very famous speech very famous. The context of it, I think, is important exactly to your point that he gives this speech in an interrupted and emotional state. And he gives this speech also at a transition point in his own life in which he is passing on his daughter. Yeah. Like the love of his life to another man and blessing their union. And it is all gone according to plan. It's the proper time for it. This is a good man and they love each other. And uh, Prospero is, and in many ways, like the redemption point of his sad story here. His daughter's getting married uh, and he has not just, I, I don't want to use the word revenge. It's more like justice yeah. upon his enemies. They have been held accountable or about to be held accountable for what they have done to him. And, and then he is about to make a very grand gesture in, in act five of laying down his art. And so this is, you know, we're in the season of autumn right now. Um, and this kind of is mirrored in that, that that's the high point of the year. That's how autumn is, right? It's, it's the high point of the year. It's the point in which uh, the, the year's growth is being harvested and enjoyed uh, and where everybody's eating well and, and, and it's beautiful. The leaves are turning, but at the same time, it's the world is dying. It's going yeah. into a state of decay, and so that that's you know po poets always write poems about autumn, and and so because it's this season of beauty and mystery and contradiction and paradox, and in and in a lot of ways that's what's happening with Prospero right here. Yeah. There's a lot of emotions and a lot of circumstances converging upon this moment, and he's he's expressing that, and it's kind of a. It's a beautiful speech, but it, it does kind of feel like it comes a little bit out of nowhere too, because they're having this moment of celebration and this play within a play. And then he hasn't, he remembers something that he had forgotten. He remembers Caliban's coming for him and he kind of freaks out and everyone's surprised because he's not usually an emotional guy. And then, and then he gives this speech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh, well, that was a really beautiful random speech out of yeah, nowhere. Right. Like dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is, yeah, it's well said. So there's just, there's a lot of things happening with this speech that are beyond the words, but I'd love to hear, having given that context, you know, what, what do you make of this speech um, for Prospero? And then I know you want to talk about Shakespeare, so maybe both, both and. I, I think his work, is, 
I think his work is coming to an end. I think he knows that he's going to get what he wants. He's going to get justice. I think he is confident that his daughter will be well married to Ferdinand. And I think it's sort of like, I'll tell you as an actor, how I would play it. I would play it as a father-in-law who is making a toast at his daughter's wedding dinner, maybe at the reception the night before the rehearsal dinner the night before. And his emotions kind of outpace him a little bit. And he is looking in this really happy moment. He's looking toward the end of his life and he gets swept up in it. You know, he kind of looks a little bit too far ahead. He looks toward the end of his life and he looks at the summation of his work and he acknowledges that even in this happy moment, life is fleeting and life is short and I, I would play it. I would, I would play it with um, like tears in my eyes, you know, that despite the joy of the occasion uh, there's, there's great sadness in the world. Right. There's grief for him. He's happy for yeah. Miranda, but it's, it's, it's different. I, it's a different occasion to him means something different to him than it does to his daughter. And he loves Miranda more than himself, but he also knows that, something is coming to an end for him. This there's grief in it. Yeah. One of the reasons why people think that um, this is his farewell is the mention of the globe. Yep. So, so he says the cloud cap towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself. And of course, coming out of Prospero's mouth, that sounds like the planet earth but anyone inside the original performing space would recognize that also as a reference to the theater that Shakespeare worked the majority of his professional career in, which was the globe globe on the Thames river. So Heidi Shakespeare born right in the middle of the Protestant revolution in England. So 1564 in Stratford upon Avon, Stratford-upon-Avon is a little town. It's about a two and a half hour drive by car northwest of London. Have you been there, Tim? I've it's never been there. Have you been there? I have. What did you I think? Been there. It's charming. I mean, they they have kept the the buildings. You know, the white buildings with the dark panels on it. Yeah. And you can go see the house where he was born. You can go. It. it but. What's, what I love about England is they understand the appeal, but they it doesn't look like Disneyland. Like, it actually looks yeah. like a real town. Like, they don't – in all of England, this I appreciate England for this. They don't play up the tourist thing so much. It's not like you walk into it and you feel like you're in a fake you right. know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare land. Like, it Good. really is just the town. Yeah. Uh, and they have – and um, they have lots and lots of statues and plaques and you can walk the Shakespeare trail. You can go see where he's buried. You can see where he was born. You can do, pl- there's plenty of stuff to do that's Shakespeare related, but you can also just kind of wander around a charming town next to the river. And it's really lovely. And you feel like, wow, I, I can imagine a young man growing up here and being captivated by magic because um, 
England is so green and it really looks like a gnome is going to pop out from behind a tree <laughs> everywhere. Like you just really understand why British literature is infused with magic. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Well, I hope to get to Stratford on Avon at some point. I will at some mm-hmm. point. His father was a glove maker. His name was John. But he wasn't just, I mean, that, that sounds like menial labor, and this could kind of support one of the theories about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare did not have the kind of education or the sort of like elite upbringing that would be required to be as literate as he was. However, his father was a glove maker, but also his father held some pretty prominent civic positions within Stratford upon Avon. And so he could probably afford. That's not the right way of saying it because he, it would make sense that John would send his son, William to a grammar school and that, that William would not just be employed in the family trade as other young people would have been, but could have gotten an education. So Shakespeare was educated at the local grammar school and that grammar school it's probably going to sound a little bit familiar to those that are part of the Christian classical education renewal. So they, it's a heavy instruction in Latin and they're reading lots of Latin authors. They're, they're in essence reading the classics. They're reading Terence, Virgil, Ovid. Ovid. And of course, Virgil and Ovid show really prominently in this play. They also read Horace. Um, and, I, I think Cicero, the rhetorician. Cicero, as yes, well. yes, absolutely. So Shakespeare's training absolutely makes a lot of sense for a very, for a highly literate man, the highly literate man that he would become. I want to come back to this, Heidi, because I think it might be kind of fun to kind of play pro and contra about whether or not Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Some, you know, some theorists say no, he wasn't. You know, he was, he was person that we call William Shakespeare was actually someone like Francis Bacon, because Francis Bacon, he had the kind of elite upbringing that would be required to write 38 plays, two narrative poems, 154 sonnets. Only somebody like Francis Bacon could actually do that. But we'll come back to that. Um, Shakespeare, when he is 18, falls in love with a woman six years, eight years, his senior. Eight years. Yeah, she was 26 when they got married. And... She was pregnant when they got married with their first child. They had two more children. One of them, named Hamnet, died when he was a a boy. Um, But by that point, Shakespeare was likely living in London, and he was pursuing his professional theater career, both as a playwright, but also as an actor. What are the other important things about his life that need to be well, we Noted, don't Heidi. know much. That's the thing about Shakespeare. He's a bit of an enigma historically, and it's very hard even to find him in his own work. In fact, Keats, uh, John Keats, great admirer of Shakespeare, like all great writers, uh, but he he made up a literary term we still use today using Shakespeare as an example called negative capability. Uh, And Keats point was great writers pull themselves out of their own work. Hmm. And so when you read your, when you read the work of a great author in a great book, uh, it's hard to figure out what that author actually believed. Uh, And 
it's the negative space in which you know, the ambiguity, the gray area, like we're seeing with Prospero. Is Prospero good or is he bad or is he somewhere in the middle? You know, these are the questions that haunt Shakespeare's writing. He doesn't take a stand. He just tells us great story. And and so it's hard even to find Shakespeare, the enigma, Shakespeare, the man of mystery, uh, even within his great and illustrious body of work. We don't know hardly anything about him. He didn't leave diaries. He didn't, you know, he wrote prolifically, but not about himself, not ever about himself. So he's, he's just this question mark. Uh, Heidi, for me, there are a couple of reasons. I think there's, for me, there's a really big reason why this might be the case. I, so Shakespeare is writing for Kings and Queens. Mm Mm-hmm during the Protestant Revolution in England. And those kings and queens are kind of changing their allegiance, meaning their allegiance to a church is changing with each different ruler. Yes. And the stakes for someone with religious convictions, the stakes are extremely high. So just to kind of, re- you'll have to help me a little bit here on the British history, but the famous move is Henry VIII wants a divorce and the Pope won't grant him a divorce. And of course, Henry VIII would be a Catholic. Europe is Catholic, but the rumblings of the Protestant revolution have kind of happened. Martin Luther has posted his 95 theses and now Henry to put I don't know if this is cynical or if this is kind of just historically just completely justifiable. Henry is less concerned with the religious question of, am I going to be Catholic or am I going to be part of this Protestant revolution? He's more concerned with a couple of things, getting his divorce granted from the Pope and securing some lands for his throne that belong to the Catholic church. So he dissolves the bonds between the English crown and the papacy. And he starts kind of a third, a third way. So neither Catholic, neither Protestant, but kind of a midpoint, which is the church of England, the Anglican church. I've now reduced like ecclesiastical history to like a 30 second soundbite. And those of you who are like rolling your eyes at me, you're totally justified. But you're right. Those are the, that's, you're, Those are the main plots. The facts things. are yeah. exactly right. So Shakespeare is born kind of while all of this uproar between Catholics and Protestants is still happening. Yes, a generation after Henry VIII. And in, in many ways, Europe is kind of like in flames. Mm-hmm. And he can't politely, Shakespeare or his father or his, you know, his mother cannot, how do I say this? If they are Protestants and there's a Catholic on the throne, they're not going to be very forthcoming about them, about being Protestants. If they're Catholics, when there's a Protestant on the throne, they're not going to be forthcoming about being Catholics. So this is also a question about Shakespeare is what, what are his religious convictions? Is he a closet Protestant? Is he a closet Catholic? And I kind of lean, I don't know what you think, Heidi, but I kind of lean one way. I'd love to hear it. Tell us. I think, I think we have evidence that his father, John, 
was a Catholic. There was, I think in the last generation, um, there's evidence of John attending a Catholic church. So from that, I think it's reasonable to think that his son would have been raised Catholic, though it would have been, he would have been, he would have done it in a very hushed manner. Sure. He was baptized in the Church of England. Right. Shakespeare right. was. But that's, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't raised in some right. ways closet Catholic. Right. So I, if his father, John, if we do have a little bit of evidence that his father, John, was closet Catholic, I think that Shakespeare, our best guess is he was raised closet Catholic. Then when he comes into maturity, do things change for him? Is he still a practicing closet Catholic in London? Is he friendly with the Protestants? Or is he kind of, is he kind of an agnostic? Or one can even say, like, there are, like, there are aspects of certain speeches, I think of Richard II, maybe even some of Hamlet's, which there's a kind of world weariness that might signal that, that Shakespeare was without religious conviction, that he was maybe agnostic, that he had kind of like tried to wash his hands of the whole thing. For me, that, that question is a lot harder to answer. And I think just based on, based on the text that we have, I don't really, I just really don't know, Heidi. I really don't know. I feel comfortable saying that he was at home <laughs> in what Paul Tillich would call a three-tiered universe. Like, I think mm. he was fully at home believing that this world was between heaven and hell. Now, the path to heaven, was it a Catholic path or was it a Protestant path? I don't know what Shakespeare thought. Do you think it matters in reading and interpreting his work? I don't. I don't. I mean, I think if you tried to like call him a nihilist, that he had kind of like no convictions whatsoever, I think that would... Uh, completely fall apart on the yeah, first I think time be, you read his yeah, I think that'd be, that'd be tough. Yeah. It'd be tough to accept. Um, but no, I don't think having like a firm conviction about whether or not he was Protestant or Catholic... I, I don't think it's an essential question to answer. Not at all. I don't either. It is interesting. There, there are people who get really excited about this question and, uh, you know, the question of authorship of Shakespeare, what you brought up before, or what Shakespeare believed politically or religiously, or they kind of comb through his plays and try to figure out what, where he stood on various relevant issues to his day that continue to be relevant today. And I... I think that that's fun, but I don't think that you can do it. Mm. I think, as Keats claimed, Shakespeare's masterful at negative capability. Mm. He writes, and and when I when I teach his plays, particularly the history plays, which are my favorite, but most people don't like them that much or as much as the comedies and tragedies. But I love the history plays, and one of the reasons I do is because of this this conversation. Shakespeare has this point counterpoint tool within his history all of his plays but that shines in the history plays hits you in the face with the history plays do you want you want to know if he was a monarchist you want to know if he was a catholic or a protestant you don't know where he stood in the uh between france and england you cannot tell right like it's he there's one character that represents one point of view there's another character that has the opposite point of view and neither of them are held up above the other it's point 
counterpoint, point, yeah. counterpoint throughout his plays on all issues that were relevant to his time and relevant that continue to be relevant in Western culture today. And that I think is part of his enduring brilliance. You can, most people will say Shakespeare believed dot, dot, dot. You know, Christians will say Shakespeare was certainly a Christian, but mm-hmm. you know why? It's because we are Christians and you can <laughs> find it in his play. In some ways, proof texting, because you be an agnostic and read Hamlet and be like, that Shakespeare should yeah. really believe anything, right? Yeah. So there's this sense in which his play plays kind of meld to the everyman. Yeah. And that I think is what makes him enduringly read and and brilliant and and masterful and a genius. Um so we all have kind of our theories on, you know, if you if you're a Protestant, you're probably gonna find more of that in Shakespeare. Right. And that's because it's there. Yeah. It's there. But he's not necessarily taking a stand on it. Like the good guy is the Protestant or the good guy is the Catholic or the good guy is the monarchist or, you know what I mean? So that is, you know, something even Henry V, which is claim, it was claimed at the time to be this great um, patriotic play. And then now hundreds of years later, we're reading it as subversive. Yeah. That's mostly the modern reading of it. Uh, and, you know, Caliban how Shakespeare for was, us. Yes, Caliban for Caliban us. Shylock. Like, yeah, right. Yes, Caliban's right. perfect example of this. Um, you know, we like the antihero. And so we want to be sympathetic to the scapegoat character. Shakespeare's audience would not have been sympathetic yeah. to Caliban at all. You do, and Shylock's another great example. I keep putting the two together. Uh, but at the time that Shakespeare wrote Shylock, he would have been a comic villain. Now we read him as a pathetic villain in the true sense of pathos and in which we have a sympathy for him, but know that he's bad. And so that is the genius of Shakespeare. You really cannot say this man believed dot, dot, dot. And we have no personal diaries or personal records in order to say, hey, from the historical record, we can tell what he believed or thought or whatever. And so, you know, if you like that kind of thing, dig into it, but it's not necessary in interpreting and reading the plays. There was a play that I saw, Heidi, I've mentioned on the air before at the, in Ashland, Oregon, which is home to this great Shakespeare festival. The play was called Equivocation, and it was a contemporary play, probably written about eight, nine years ago. And it stars William Shakespeare as the leading character. And the play, the meaning or the the kind of like subject matter of the play can be found in the title, Equivocation. It's all about, so it's Shakespeare and I think three of his actors and Shakespeare is writing a, a play that ended up not being performed, you know, in this kind of like fictional world. And his friends, these other actors, are constantly accusing him of equivocating, hmm. of constantly kind of like see, of hiding what his real convictions are, and never really coming out with what he truly believes. And it's it's a absolutely fantastic play, and the playwright I can't remember his name right now is kind of critical of Shakespeare, but in a really sophisticated way, he he is frustrated that Shakespeare knows so well how to please the Kings that he's writing for the Queens that he's writing for the Dukes that he's writing for while also not giving offense with his own convictions. That would be, that would be a kind of like 
a critical way of say, of, of viewing Shakespeare that we can't find him in his plays because he was chiefly concerned with protecting himself and, and hiding his convictions because he needed to get paid. It, I, I would say it in a slightly different way. I think his he didn't he didn't want to get decapitated. I mean, it's not just that he wanted to get paid. Of course he did. Um, but I think part of the reason that he is so hard to find, that he hid himself in his plays, is because to give gross offense in that time would not have resulted in a swift slap on the wrist. It would have resulted in serious physical harm to him, state-justified right. physical harm to him. So I can fully understand why it's hard to find his convictions in his play or why, to say it in the way that you said it, why he gives rival characters both equal voice, equal dexterity in making their cases because yeah, Shakespeare did not have the luxury of writing messages into his plays. Okay, that being said, he does seem preoccupied with, a, with, with one topic more than any other. If you look at his plays, there are a few plays that do not de deal directly with the rule, the political rule of monarchs. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And he's dangerous about that. Like he wrote, for him to do the Henriad was taking the bull by the horns. So this was, and, and so I think your point about can he take a stand? Does he, is, is it purely pragmatic that he is kind of leaving his own political inclinations out? Maybe so. Maybe that, maybe that contributes to it. That would be actually wise of him. Yeah. To not take a stand on the religion, you know, the broiling religious uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. And foment of the day, political and religious. However, he takes on the War of the Roses, which was just set, you know, less less than a hundred years before, and had utterly decimated England. Just. And it's far too complicated to get into the history of the War of the Roses on this podcast, but it's a fascinating time period. Some really good historical fiction has been written about the War of the Roses, and then there's you know tons of information uh, on on this very very uh, fraught time period in English history, uh, which was brought to an end the War of the Roses by Henry VIII's father. Uh, Henry VII, and then Henry VIII was supposed to be like this golden ruler. Uh, and instead, he brought about the Protestant Reformation, which again tore apart England and all of Europe to this day. It, it is still, there's still a schism in Western culture because of Henry VIII. Um, but, and Shakespeare just took it on. He's like, sure, I'll write about Henry VI. I'm going to go for Henry V. Like, I'm going to go into this <laughs> political turmoil and write these amazing characters uh, and, and write about uh, the overthrow of Richard II by Henry IV, in which Queen Elizabeth stood up and stormed out of the Globe Theater mm. saying, know ye not, I am Richard. Mm. Right. So mm. she is unsettled by the depiction of Richard II being torn off the throne and replaced by another ruler because this is every monarch's biggest fear. They know actually the monarch is not as strong as the people. 
this is the uneasy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> so that, that if, if the people were to stand and rise up against a monarch, that monarch would, would be easily, it's just one person. Yeah. And so all monarchs have this kind of existential dread. What if the people don't like me? But on the other hand, there's this power complex. It's a very complicated, very, very complicated human uh, experience to be a monarch. And I've never experienced that. (laughs) But I feel as though I know a little bit of what it might be like because of Shakespeare. Mm. Because he goes into the psychology of the rulership for the people and for the ruler him or herself. And you see that in Prospero here in The Tempest. What is it like to be not just a king, but a magician? This is something he hasn't taken on until this play. Yeah, yeah. And to have art beyond the ordinary man, to be able to make the elements themselves respond to me, which in, it brings up another universal contemplation of Shakespeare's plays to bring it back to this play, which is the nature of the theater itself. What does it mean to be a playwright? You're writing an entire world. Yeah. And people are buying it. Yeah. Like they're, they're there. Like, and he knows the power that he has and he contemplates it throughout all of his plays. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that I think is what we see in, in Prospero's speech as well. As, as, as the playwright as a magician the playwright as a weaver of art, of magic that people are influenced by. Yeah. The, the famous line from Hamlet, the plays the thing wherein will catch the conscience of the king, mm-hmm. comes at the end of a rumination that Hamlet has about um, having watched people in the theater respond unguardedly to action that's happening on a play happening on a stage. And from that Hamlet says, well, this is how I'm going to get my uncle to kind of admit that he killed my dad. He would never openly admit it. I have to kind of trick him into admitting it. How am I going to trick him? I'm going to put on a play because a play sort of disarms us in a way that it can work on our inner selves. It can work on our consciences. And I, and I think Shakespeare was fully aware that of the power of theater upon his audiences. And as much as I want to complain about him, I'm not even really complaining. As much as I want to acknowledge that he, I think he was a master equivocator. equivocator. Mm-hmm. But I still think that there that he knew the craft of how to work upon the conscience. And I think, I think that his work upon the conscience is a, is good work. It's, it's redeeming work. It's an elevation of not just the human condition, but also of the desire of our desire to be good and to not be bad. I, I recognize that he, <laughs> is so masterful at making horrible, horrible characters pretty appealing. I mean, mm-hmm. Iago is a monster and a villain, and he's kind of sexy and kind of cool. Yeah. So I acknowledge that about Shakespeare, but I even think that there's something, there's something about we recognize that Iago kind of has to, throughout the remainder of his life, which presumably at the end of Othello will be brief, 
his conscience is going to, it's going to ball up on him. And the last part of his life is not going to be a pleasant one. There's something, there's a moral compass. I think that he believes it's pretty unalterable. You can't just do whatever you want to and get away with it and, and not suffer the consequences. So as much as he equivocates and as much as he draws characters, evil characters in a light that can make us really identify with them, I still think his overall trajectory as a playwright is, is toward the good. It's, and it's not just beautiful, but it's, it's toward the good. I agree completely because here's, here's what I'm not about to do. I'm not about to say Shakespeare and Jesus are the same, but here's <laughs> what I am about to say is that when pressed, our Lord himself would not take a stand on the contemporary issues of the day. He was not concerned about being relevant. Let me tell you what I think about the Roman Empire. Let me tell you what I think about taxation. Right? Right. Instead, he says, look at the image on this coin. In the same way that there is an image on this coin, there is an image on you. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, you have the image of God. Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And I think, in some ways, Shakespeare draws that same line. He he is he's concerned with universal things. He's concerned with love and hate and mercy and justice. He's not concerned with whether or not Queen Elizabeth should do dot dot dot. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is the line in the sand that he draws. And 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 some of that could just be because he wants to tell a good story and he wants people to buy tickets and come and see it. And and he understands I'm not out to offend anybody. I'm not using my art as some kind of political uh statement. Uh that art is art. Art is its own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not propaganda. And so there's there's some I think of that sense of like, hey, I want people to come and hear and just experience a good story in these fraught political times. And I want to keep my head on my shoulders. I think that there's some of that. But I also think that Shakespeare is, he cares about universal things. He looks at the politics of the time and he sees it as an icon or a mirror into the greater story. And that is Shakespeare's genius. I think Homer was the same way. Mm. I think those are why we still read them. Is Is that he's saying, Oh, in the battle for succession in my country, there's a bigger story going on. And that's the thing I want to write about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting also that um, when, when false dilemmas were presented to Jesus, he would most often answer with a story. So rather yes. than saying, well, I can see this side or I can see this side, he kind of stepped out of the false dilemma and kind of rewove the world. So the question of who is my neighbor is a really loaded question when it's put to Jesus. And how does he answer? He answers with the story of the Good Samaritan that just basically recapitulates the whole question and puts it back on terms that he's, he's willing to deal with. And I, if Shakespeare's entire time, like his generation was, a generation in dilemma, this dilemma being Protestant and Catholic and the, and all of the allegiances and authorities, all of the questions that follow that big question of kind of like, is your allegiance to the Catholic church or to the Protestant church? Shakespeare's answer to that dilemma, I do think is I'm going to tell a story 
I'm going to recapitulate this by, by telling a story. So I, I, I think that's, I think it's kind of a lesson there because I feel like oftentimes I, um, will a friend or an acquaintance or even a stranger will put forth a question that I feel like, boy, that's a false dilemma. And to choose one or to choose the other, I both, I, I disagree with both answers. So I think it's a little bit instructive that these two men told stories as a way of kind of like dissolving those false dilemmas. That's right. Yes. And to say this is a, a human question, not an mm-hmm. ideological yeah, right, one. Right. And that's Shakespeare all the time. He creates characters that are fully rounded. Almost all of Shakespeare's characters, even the lowborn characters, the bit characters, almost all of them have some kind of glimpse into their humanity. Iago is a great example. Caliban. Um, that there's these these even the villain characters have that Shakespeare justly that get their just desserts at the end of scene four. Excuse me, at the end of Act Four, Scene One, Caliban is chased out by magical hounds. Right, because he deserves that. Like there's yeah. justice is done because he's doing evil, but there's still there's still a, a, a deep humanity in this character, and that's how it is with all of the villains. Uh, maybe some exceptions in some of the earlier plays in which there's a little bit more of the stock character kind of thing. Yeah. But as he comes into his own, particularly in the in the romances towards the end, when when when. Shakespeare's characters take on like kind of a contemplative, meditative, um, a deeper sense of pathos. And these later plays like The Tempest and The Winter's Tale and Measure for Measure, uh, disturbing play, um, that, that there's these, there's this sense of very deep humanity in all of these characters. Uh, and, and that's what Shakespeare was interested in, is telling the story of people in extraordinary circumstances yeah. that have to make choices that have consequences. I, I think one thing to someone who is um, contemplating a life of writing fiction or drama, one thing to notice about Shakespeare is that not a single character, this is kind of echoing what you said at the end, Heidi, no character walks on the stage without an agenda. Mm-hmm. And those agendas are, like the agenda must be accomplished or something very bad will happen to that character. So even messengers, even messengers delivering news, they're delivering news often to very angry despots or kings and their life is on the line, you know? And so just as a writing, something to look for as something to emulate as a writer, Shakespeare is, absolutely wonderful at putting his characters in dire circumstances and kind of like obliging them to find their way out. And it makes viewers have to pay attention. You have to pay attention when a character is in dire circumstances and could lose their head, you know, could lose their livelihood, could lose their freedom if things go wrong for them. Heidi, let's real quickly, just because I think it, part of being the hosts of this show is we kind of have to do due diligence every once in a while. And I think we have to do due diligence on the question of was Shakespeare Shakespeare or was Shakespeare somebody else 
Francis Bacon, uh, Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, right. maybe right. secretly Queen Elizabeth. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, I don't, I don't buy that. I think that William Shakespeare was the author of William Shakespeare's plays and poems, but let me play devil's advocate for a second. The, the lack of a paper trail. That's just, mm-hmm. it's bizarre. So this, this is like the very first kind of idea that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare happened about 150 years after his death. So there's a scholar and a reverend, his name's John Wilmot, and he set out to write a biography of Shakespeare. He goes to Stratford-upon-Avon, and he wants to kind of like just, you know, like, let's find some of his writings, let's learn what the man's history was. And lo and behold, he couldn't find anything about written by the man. He couldn't find anything. And so he's the first to sort of suggest that maybe Shakespeare was just sort of like a real person, but the, his identity was borrowed and used by someone like Francis Bacon, who did have the kind of credentials of education, who did have this sort of like um, pathway into power such that he could have used, he could have written these plays. He had the background to write these plays, but this middle-class guy, Shakespeare, no, he just didn't have the credentials necessary to write these, this quality of work. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, the other, the other big argument, (laughs) uh, which I'm sure we'll get into is that education piece, but history doesn't necessarily bear the, at least the educational argument out very well. So I don't know if our, did you, did you ever watch the show, the crown? I did. I watched the first season. It's great. Great show. Uh, Great show. Oh man. I'm like obsessed with that show, Uh, especially season one. I loved season one, but there's, I think it is in season one when there's a, an episode about Elizabeth and her angst about her education. Do you remember this episode? I do. I do. So she's sitting, it shows this little girl and she has a private tutor. She didn't go to school. And so she has this private tutor who tells her all about what it uh, the like the minutia of the laws of England, uh, and and the, the mm. art of uh, not even the art of statesmanship. It's just this is what you need to know about England because you are England, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, but she doesn't get a general education, and in some ways, that's what it would have been like to be in the upper classes, unless you wanted to get, unless you had a scholarly bent, like say Francis Bacon, and he, and so he went to Oxford. He wanted to get this greater education, but Oxford, even at the time, was just starting out as this cultural center of learning, and it didn't have the same kind of um, weight to it that it, it did later on in history, and so this idea that the upper classes were better educated than the middle class is a bit of a myth. Mm. So the middle classes would have gotten more of a general education if their parents had enrolled them in something like the Stratford Grammar School, in which they got a full-on classical education, which is not what the upper classes would have been taught. The Most of the, the upper class would have been taught things like what it means to be a courtier, how to joust, um, how to give a speech. There would have been rhetorical training. There would have been uh, a lot of minutia of 
of the rulership of a country and, and how to run a, a, an estate, but it would not have been the rigorous training that an, an upwardly mobile middle-class person would have gotten. Somebody like William Shakespeare, or another example of this would have been Thomas Cromwell, who was an advisor, close advisor to Henry VIII. He was the one who kind of spearheaded uh, the break from the Pope as a move of political expediency. And Thomas Cromwell was the same kind of middle-class, upwardly mobile thinker like you know, potentially like Shakespeare, um, who who was ambitious and his father was wealthy enough to afford a really good education for him, but he wasn't upper class. And so, but he was driven. And so he got this amazing education. He memorized the entire New Testament mm. uh, because he got this education at a grammar school, similar to the one that Stratford, uh, the, the Stratford-upon-Avon grammar school. So there is a, a historical precedent for middle-class people getting a better classical education than the upper classes would have gotten unless they were so inclined mm. or unless their fathers wanted it for them. Uh, so, if Shakespeare showed a lot of promise as a young man, then it's very, very believable that his father would have encouraged his education in order for him to build a better life. Uh, and there was the potential for that with education in that time in England, it wasn't the kind of the, the medieval caste system, so to speak, right, that they would right. have had several hundred years earlier. And so, that's kind of the educational argument for the Shakespeare, the true William Shakespeare. As far as the paper trail goes, that's another, like we said, it's a historical mystery. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. We don't know if it was destroyed according to his wishes, if it was somehow in his will, if there was some kind of, uh, he didn't want to be known like that, or whether he was just so busy writing three masterfully brilliant plays a year that he didn't <laughs> keep track of his personal life. <laughs> right, he had no, so, time for, no time for scribblings. And also being an actor and a businessman running right. the theater right. and running the theater company. So, you know, I, I don't know that he might be in his grave being like, I was too busy. Right. So. Give me a break for not leaving receipts lying around the house. I was too busy. Right. I was too busy writing like the greatest collection of plays ever published by a single author. Exactly. I will say one other thing about Shakespeare's education or actual lack thereof, he did not go to university. Mm -hmm. And this caused like some of like, you know, the upper crust of society did not like this. So there's this, there's this famous attack on Shakespeare from Robert Greene, who's, you know, an elitely educated dun, dun, dun. playwright. And he calls Shakespeare an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. Mm -hmm. um, I love that insult. I mean, you know, like, who got the last laugh? Shakespeare got the last laugh. There's a theater in Eugene, Oregon, where I used to live. It's run partly by my friend Jackie, and it's called Upstart Crow Theater. So a little allusion it. to the insult from Robert Greene about Shakespeare's, you know, lack of education. He, he purports to be one of us, but really he's just kind of a, he's just kind of a reacher. He's a middle-class uh, reacher. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. I think that's amazing. And it's very likely he just was captivated by these stories and wanted to write some of his own. Um, and he did use lots of sources. He didn't make up the plots for almost all of his work. Mm. Uh, and but he was obviously a, a thinking kind of person, a kind of person who who meditated on things and, and uh, synthesized many different ideas and stories. And I mean, I 
I think that makes a lot of sense for a middle-class child in a hierarchical society. I think the psychology makes more sense for him to have been middle-class. Yeah. And that's just a theory of my own, um, that he, he, he was a genius with an imagination and a desire to create something beautiful and something lasting that he had the opportunity to do because he was middle-class, because he could run a theater and didn't have to run an estate. Agreed. Heidi, I think it's time. How can it be time? It's only been like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we said nothing about... We just started. I know, we did. We said nothing about Shakespeare's word coining power. <sighs> um, actually, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a closing thought. And why don't you think about a closing thought also? I have one at the ready, but I want to hear yours okay. first. Mine is a teaching tip. I, so Shakespeare coined words. I think we should just talk about that on another episode. You know, the incredible number of words that he made. But part of the way that he made words was by adding prefixes and suffixes to already existing words or taking existing nouns and making them into verbs. So the word friend, he apparently was the first word to use the word friend as a verb. So Heidi, when I friended you on Facebook, that was kind of like me giving a little shout out to Shakespeare's word corning power. That's how I took it at the time. Good. That's what I thought you would take it as a scholar. (laughs) Um, I think as as teachers, I used to do with my students and they really liked it. Have them in their next paper coin one new word and use either an existing word and add a prefix or a suffix to it or make a noun into a verb or a verb into a noun and just have them put it in the paper. But they have to do it in such a way that the new word makes contextual sense and makes sense based on kind of like the previous words that they're kind of building from. I think that's a fun little thing, especially if your students struggle to write papers as so many young people do. It's just not always a fun exercise. Give them not just permission, but like give them a mandate that they've got to invent a new word and put it in their paper. That's great. I love that. Heidi, what's your closing thought? Well, I wanted to comment a little on how off the rails we got and kind of put <laughs> that back into uh, a more of a unified context. I, I think that there's something about this play that synthesizes a lot of Shakespeare's work that lends itself to contemplation of the entire canon. Ooh, how and, so? Well, because as we've talked about already, Shakespeare made this story up uh, instead of getting it from another source the way he did with most of his other plays. And and so there's something about the threads that he throws out in The Tempest that kind of like I said, lends itself to, oh, I remember that from mm-hmm. something else, right? You know, I keep equating Caliban with Shylock. I've done it on every episode. And, and uh, that's what I mean. The kind of thing when you see a character or you see a plot point or you see a word or a contemplation, a theme, um, something in the language or something in the story that leads you to 
something else from yeah. Shakespeare. You know, you've got the fathers releasing and empowering their daughters, the betrayal of a rightful ruler, the green world versus the civilized world, uh, the attempt to control supernatural powers, kind of these threats to identity and questions of identity, nature versus nurture, all these different things, civil war, brother against brother, uh, all these different things that have come throughout come to the surface throughout his work that as we read, especially people who really love Shakespeare know that this was probably uh, his last play um, or at least one of his last plays, then it's almost like we're along with Prospero bidding farewell. Yeah. Even in reading it in contemporary times, even though I can close the Tempest and, and open up Midsummer Night's Dream or Othello anytime I want, but there's something about this play that feels like the end of yeah, something. Yeah. And it has this quality to it of 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 longing and of memory mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and of of the tying together of of many different threads that kind of weave together to make this beautiful tapestry of the play itself and of Shakespeare's entire canon. And so in getting off the rails, I actually think we're doing justice to the play. Okay, good. That's, that's, that's what I think. Um, and I'm not trying to just, I'm not trying to say, <laughs> well, I thought of this. And so here's my reason why I should, but there really is something in this play that has a quality of memory to it and, a, and a contemplation or a meditation of the past and a looking forward towards a better world. And I yeah. love that. And so it does remind me of all of his work. And I, I think there are other late plays like Cymbeline or maybe the winter's tale that don't have the kind of thematic, uh, they don't induce longing and memory for me as deeply as The Tempest does. The Tempest just does, even if it's not his last play, it has the thematic elements and the kind of aroma of farewell. Yep. Heidi, excellent episode. I know. That was so fun. It's fun to just talk about Shakespeare, the man. And I, I hope I have the opportunity someday in the kingdom of God to have this conversation with him. That would be so. great. That would be great. Maybe like that should be, we could do that as part of an episode. Like what would the question be that you would ask him? Right. Yes. Yeah. Him and C.S. Lewis. Those yeah. are people I just can't wait to talk to. So, so last week, Heidi, is act five. We will conclude the play. Then we will do a question and answer about the Tempest. So we will be finishing this play next week and kind of putting a bow on it the following week. Um, to it. Me too. So thanks everybody for listening. Remember you can join the conversation online on Facebook through the close reads discussion group or on Instagram or on Twitter at close reads pods and via email by writing to close reads podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget you can get our email newsletter through closereads.substack.com. For Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm Tim McIntosh. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.